0: Mr. Sherman Bristow, thank you very much for coming on this episode of the Path to Follow podcast. Great to have you.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Should be a good time here. Uh, we, have, we haven't we have met in a few years. I think maybe met briefly when I first came down to Gilman four years ago, but um, it's great to see you again. I'm looking forward to hearing a little bit about your story and your time at Gilman and, uh, and what makes this place so special for you.
1: I'm ready. Fire away.
0: All right. All right. So uh, I was talking to Thanel, uh Bader when I was coming down here just briefly, and I told him that you'd be coming on. And he said that maybe you were the, the first person to coin or, or just use the term B. Gilman. And I found that interesting, B. Gilman, because I love that slogan and what that means. And I was wondering if there's a little bit of backstory behind that
1: Sure, uh, I was a football coach for, among other things, for 16 years, from '80 to '96, and uh, in those days, widespread recruiting was not rampant in the MIAA conference football. However, some schools were better at it than others, and oftentimes, Gilman football teams were not the biggest, fastest. Uh, all that sort of thing, the quantifiables we weren't always there with some of the people we played against. But uh, I wanted the team to be smart, to play hard, and to be tough. I wanted them to be as confident as they could be in their bodies. That meant in the off season, if they weren't playing some other sport, or in the summer, if they had time, they were lifting and getting ready for football, even if it was their second or third sport. So I wanted all our opponents to know that when it was Gilman week, you were in for a battle, whether you were bigger and stronger than they were or not, uh, you were going to be up against them in a tough fight. And I took great pride in that. And somehow from that in pregame speeches or halftime exhortations, it became be Gilman. And uh, when I was I was athletic director at the same time. And uh, it sort of went beyond football, became sort of an athletic mantra. And then... In my day, I took great pride in thinking that was also part of sort of the Gilman culture. I, became, I was associate headmaster for nine years, and I wanted that to be sort of the Gilman culture, a complete, not just athletic, but everywhere. So be smart, do whatever you do to the best of your ability, and be tough and confident. Um, and that's that's sort of the backstory to it.
0: Were you, uh, did you always kind of know that you wanted to be a coach when you were growing up and coming through Gilman as an athlete or how did that transpire?
1: Good question. Um, There's a guy named Redmond Finney who was my football coach uh, when I was a quarterback at Gilman and my, um, well, my eventual first employer and then the guy that I worked side by side with for 21 of my 26 years. Um, I was down from school at spring break in my senior year, and I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. It looked like it was I was headed to insurance with, uh, of all people, Mac Barrett's father, Alan Barrett, for whom the baseball field is mentioned. And uh, and Mac was a good friend of mine. We're classmates. And it uh, looked like that's what I was going to do, although I was just a kid coming out of college. I had real, no real idea. And I was standing outside the student mailboxes, um, one spring break day of mine while school was going on, Mr. Finney saw me and he grabbed me and put me in one of his arm locks and took me into the office and said, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know. He said, you're teaching English next year and coaching. And I said, okay, sure. Cause I always did what Mr. Finney said, including go to college, the one he wanted me to go to and do whatever uh, he wanted me to do, I did. And uh, so then in the old, his office, what is is what now the back of the Gilman room Um, and uh, we were in there, and I remember meeting a great Gilman teacher named Alex Armstrong, who was a legendary English teacher. And Jake, he he actually, in the August of my year where I was going to begin teaching English in September, he came in and he brought his uh, syllabus. He brought his day-to-day assignment from September or whatever, one to June one for the ninth grade so that i actually had that blueprint in my hand before i even started teaching i didn't have to worry about where we're going to be on october 10th or november 12th it was all right there all i had to do was stay a day ahead of the kids for the first year and i was okay as a teacher and um that's how that all happened so you know after a year doing that and being a pretty organized guy myself i kind of got the the uh my own version of that from year to year and sort of rolled it out every september but it was Mr. Finney telling me I was going to teach and coach.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about Mr. Finney a little bit more because that's one of the reasons that Chesra and I decided to name this podcast path to follow podcast out of, sure. because of that documentary that came out just a few years ago. Right. Um, I just felt like that would be a fitting title for what we're doing here, asking different Gilman people and even some people outside of the Gilman community about how they got to where they, right. they got to in life. Um, and Gil- and Mr. Finney obviously had a massive impact on you. He's a mentor and friend, and like a lifelong colleague. And um, I'd love just to to hear some more stories that come to mind when you when you think of Mr. Finney and his influence on the Gilman School and community.
1: Well, hopefully this is um, becoming cliche for you, but I hope you hear it a lot. Although I'm not sure as time goes on, but Mr. Finney equaled in everybody's mind integrity compassion, doing the right thing for the right reasons at all times, whether people were looking or not, um, you just acted correctly and you did the right thing for people, especially in his case, he had this incredible knack for seeing greatness in every kid. Uh, His hardest job as headmaster, and it didn't happen often, was to dismiss a boy from Gilman for some And if he did it, it had to be for some flagrant, obvious, horrible reason that he had to send him out, but he would always send him out with, and you know, Bobby, if you come back after a year, if you go where you go and come back next spring, I want you to come back to Gilman and be a part of this place. So straighten up and come back and I'll, I'll welcome you back. So that's, that's the kind of guy he was. He was that kind of guy as a coach. Um, He just had that effect on everybody. He, he met, he was humble. Uh, Humility is an important quality to have. Uh, We named, you know, and when I retired from my life after Gilman and uh, a couple of us were sitting around wondering what to do to kind of stay in it. And we decided to start a search firm looking for kids like you coming out of college who were captains of their team and didn't want to go to Wall Street or med school and wanted to have an effect on kids. Um, We decided that's what we were going to do 11 years ago. And as we were sitting around coffee table, figuring all this out, my two other partners, Chris Hutchins, who's a Gilman alumnus and Bo Dixon, who unfortunately was the headmaster at McDonough for 15 years, but is a great friend, uh, he said, of all people, he said, well, let's name it after ready, because that's the epitome of what we're looking for. The one percenter in college who wants to have an effect on kids and can be a role model for young people. Um, so it became the Finney search group. So. That name for our firm now, which is doing national work, uh, that name is everything. It is everything that's on the walls at Gilman School, Uh, his legacy at Gilman, his impact on kids and families. uh, That's, that's, we're, we're kind of in our own little way, kind of extending his legacy to other areas of education, not just Gilman School, although he certainly was widely known as an educator. Um, and that's what he stands for. And that's what he meant to all of us. Yeah, I mean, that's, I would say, I would say if you asked that of everybody, everybody you asked that of, I'd say 90% of the people would use the word integrity or humility or passion to describe Mr. Finney, compassion, especially. So,
0: now, did he, did he talk about those virtues? Did he yeah. talk about integrity a lot? Is that primarily so why that days, comes to mind? Yeah,
1: in the old days, there was a daily chapel, not just a weekly assembly in the auditorium, but a daily chapel. And one of the things that teachers had to do, each teacher had to take one chapel. It was didn't have to be religious. It could be anything you wanted it to be. Um, we had a chaplain at the school at the time. Uh, so there were some religious overtones, non, non-denominational overtones in, in the school about life lessons and, you know, meeting speakers coming from outside who were of perhaps different faiths or ways of life and things like that but mr finney always had a weekly chapel that was part of what he did and he was up there with his bible and you know oftentimes he would break down the word integrity it's an integer it is you are a whole person it is comes from this and that and here's a biblical passage to make you understand what i'm talking about so yeah he talked about it it's something that unfortunately and i've been out 25 years but i know it when i was there in 97 back to the mid 80s, it's something that has faded from Gilman, um, not just the chapel, which those of us old enough to remember always called assembly. Um, and you may have heard that from other people, but uh, it was it was a way to get together for the kids to hear stories about people and lessons they might want to teach you uh, as a student sitting in a, in a chair in an auditorium. Um, so yeah, he talked about it all the time. And he talked about it all the time in faculty meetings. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I was also, I was a lot of things at Gilman, but one of them was Dean of Students and, and uh, you know, for a few years and at one point when we went into a faculty meeting and, you know, the, the honor system and the judiciary committee and all that stuff still operates, I think the same way. That's kid driven, student driven, and they give, you know, recommendations. We give recommendations to the headmaster and I was always head of the honor committee. Um, and. They would say okay this kid's got to go or this kid's going to be suspended for a week or whatever and i take it to the headmaster and say mr headmaster the decision of the committee is to do this and then it's his decision to do whatever he wants to do so there have been numerous times we come into a faculty meeting where i assumed something was going to happen and mr finney would put his hand on his forehead and pull the hair back in the top of his head and say jeezy peasy you all i've been thinking about this for a few days and I mean, I, you know, I know you recommended a week suspension, but it's, it's going to be one day in house and, uh, I'll take care of the kid. He can come to my office and study in the afternoon, but that's what it's going to be. And we'd all kind of go, well, <laughs> okay, that's, uh, that's the way it is. And it was always more compassionate rather than more severe for sure.
0: So you had chapel, um, were there other traditions or, um, things that you did kind of during your time at Gilman that has, that have been lost, I guess, over, over time that you feel, you know, should, should maybe return or for, were lost for certain reasons. I feel like we have chapel, but it's assembly. Like we still well, gather, just not daily.
1: Well, as I, as I said, they actually had a chaplain. One, one famous one was a priest. There were, Episcopalian ministers, there were all sorts of people who were chaplains over the years, go to the archives and look it up, they're chaplains at Gilman. Um, so yeah, is that one? Yeah, has it lost its... You know, the the meetings don't have to be religious in nature. I think what I felt was lost in my last few years at Gilman was the sense of community that that brought to the student body. I mean when you come together every day it used to be the beginning of the day so 8 8 20 and then you go off to first period class then it changed to 10 whatever it is now 10 10 or 10 20 to you know whatever 10 40 and there was a long chapel every once in a while um when you had a daily chapel or a daily assembly there was a sense of community you'd go in there and and you were one of 400 and it was you know all for one one for all kind of thing it was it was B. Gilman, it was Gilman, and it wasn't just to come together to hear a speaker and then we leave and come together a week later for something else. You actually had a sense of community. There were senior speeches. I'm sure you heard about that, and and all of us sweated through those things, you know, in our day, and uh, they weren't pleasant, but we all empathized for the poor guy up there, and we knew we would be doing it or did it ourselves. So there was there was that feeling of, of community, and I hope that's still there. I'm sure there are other ways that the school considers itself a community. Uh, but I, I think that was lost in the loss of a day in the in the loss of meeting every day. I think that was a loss. Um, are, were there other traditions? You know, we had a lot of school spirit athletically in my day. Um, I think that's probably still there. Uh, the pep rally is a bit contrived in my experience in the last few years that I was there. Um, but and this goes way back, but you know, football, plays, football games were played on Friday afternoon, not Saturday or Friday night. And the lower school would come to the football game for the first half. And the middle school was there, in all of the middle school was there for the at least the first half. And generally speaking, there might be one other, two other games going on, but no intramurals, and all the kids would be there on Friday afternoon. So that, that kind of carried over in terms of school spirit into the winter uh, when, excuse me, in those days, the old gym, which was called The Gym, was packed uh, in those days with wrestling matches and kids going crazy because our wrestlers were at the top of the heap in the 70s and 80s before St. Joe and then McDonough kind of took over. And Bryn's doing a good job of bringing that back. But that's another story. And and the, the basketball team played in the old gym and it was called the deaf Dome because it was just crazy. If you put 200 people in that place, it sounds like 2,000. And... And it was a real home court advantage. I was a basketball coach for 10 years, nine years in the 70s. And I can tell you that it was true. It was a home court advantage. So so I think, you know, interestingly enough, when you go to something as big and grand and beautiful as the Finney Arena, which I was part of, I was on that committee that did it, and I was the athletic director at the time, it's a great facility. But it's a, it's an arena in high school. Mm-hmm. And it, it you know it gets filled maybe once or twice, maybe, um, athletically a year. But there's that loss of intimacy and that feeling, however, of big time. And uh, when we built it in 1990, everybody else then got in an arms race to build their own version of the mini Finney Dome. And they all upgraded their facilities. So school spirit, this goes to community that I was talking about. Um, I think that's a little bit diminished, but maybe, you know, maybe that's the world, maybe, maybe kids and families have too many other things to do, I, I don't know, and it's not quite as tight as it used to be um, around the school, I mean, uh, but uh, that's, you know, other traditions, probably some, but nothing that <laughs> makes me say we, we're missing out now. But here's one for you, Jake, and you, you're not going to believe this, but in the 60s and early 70s, the dining room was the first room in the library. You've heard that story a thousand times. And, and everybody came to eat. Every upper school came to eat in these long tables like they do in boarding schools. And, you know, teachers would have you know dish out the hash and the stuff we ate, and everybody cleaned it up, and away we went. On Friday afternoons, the football team had a training table figure that out it had an own its own table they didn't, you didn't have to sit with your advisees or whatever else you sat with here and they got steak and eggs and you know uh drinks and you know uh, uh, all this kind of protein stuff and was that a tradition i'm sorry we lost i don't think so i mean that was just kind of cool to be a part of but uh i don't think you could get away with that today in any way although some teams i guess sort of have pregame get togethers and some sort of meal kind of thing yeah um but you know not a tradition lost it's I'm, I'm pining forever that we lost it but there were a lot of different things going on in those days trust me <laughs>
0: <laughs> um so thinking about the sports that you played when you were um, yeah. at, at gilman um who were the memorable coaches and and maybe thinking about maybe the memorable seasons that you had as an athlete at Gilman three sport athlete.
1: Well, Mr. Finney was a head coach in football and he's a guy that, you know, he was head coach in football. Let me just get this straight. I think. Uh, 14 years after his college graduation, where he was a two sport, all American a uh, three sport athlete in college. So he was like the legendary football guy when he came back and became head coach. And he was in my last, two years, they were the last, two of the last, two of his last three years before he came, became headmaster. So he was a legendary football coach. And other coaches knew that he would, you know, if you wanted to get in a fight after the game, you're losing to him because he's pretty good. So, you know, he had that reputation, although he would never instigate that, of course. Um, but Nick Schloder was the head basketball coach in those days. He's a legendary uh, coach. His son, Nick, is a, is a teacher coach in the lower school, I think, still. Um, and in the old days, a fellow named Billy Campbell was the head baseball coach. who was a great, great friend of Reddy's and a guy that should deserve, get should get more credit for what Gilman is. He died early. Uh, Campbell Field is named after him. That's one of the lower fields, his family. Um, and he was a legendary coach in, in my day. He's a baseball coach. But the lacrosse team was coached by a fellow named George Chan Lee, who was, a he's got a picture somewhere in the gym. He's a, you know, lacrosse hall of famer and wrestling coaches were always the best around because Gilman had great wrestling, wrestling teams in those days. Um, you know, memorable games, everybody remembers the McDonough game, whatever sport you're playing, you know, always know how you did in that game in your senior year, everybody, everybody knows it. And, uh, those are memorable games, but we had some others, you know, in basketball, we played two of my three years, we played championship games in what is now uh, Royal Farms arena, which in those days was called the Baltimore civic center where the old NBA Baltimore bullets played. So to be a kid playing in that arena, two of my three, two of my three uh, basketball seasons was pretty cool. Um, you know,
0: what, what was yes,
1: the, and that, One of those games was against McDonough, by the way, and we crushed them, so that's good.
0: What was the most memorable McDonough game, Gilman-McDonough game you've been a part of?
1: Oh, my God, so many. Well, so I coached in 16 of them, uh, and there were a couple tough losses. Um, but the greatest McDonough game ever, uh, and they had the greatest ever, was the, the game in 94, class of 95, when... Gilman was the underdog. McDonough may have been number one. They had this quarterback who went to Florida, played for Spurrier, and they had three other guys that played division one football, um, receiver at Virginia Tech and Lyman at you know Northwestern, places like good, I mean, good, legitimate, good players. And we had a decent team, but we were probably know, five and three or six and two going into that game. And we were down big. We came back from down 14. We Held him on a goal line stand uh, at the end of the game. Recovered a fumble at the end of the game, and knelt on the ball for the last play to win, or whatever the score was—30, 30, 35 to 33 or something, something like that. Um, I should know, but that was that was a huge, huge upset. McDonough was making a real big deal about the game and this player, and uh, it was it was a wonderful game to win.
0: What is so special to you about the Gilman McDonough rivalry and that tradition?
1: To me, it's special because it's a it's a genuine, at least in my day, it used to be a genuine respect between two schools. It wasn't. uh, Some rivalries are I hate you, you hate me, let's go at it, and uh, you know we'll fight it in the in the parking lot after the game. That wasn't Gilman McDonough. It was. A respect, a healthy respect for the school and what it stood for, a healthy respect for its players, some of whom you knew off, the, you know, outside of your own school. Uh, but you know, if you compare it to like, it's a different feel from say Calver Hall or City Poly or whatever the great rivalries are these days. There's there's not the edge to it that those teams have, I don't think, in their rivalry. Uh, but there's certainly that doesn't mean it lacks for competitive spirit and uh, desire to win um so uh, you know it was, i think that's probably and i think that's in my case that's a lot of mr finney and and the people that came before me and what they you know brought to the rivalry as well uh,
0: now, now how did it be how did that rivalry become that way i guess how did it become so respectful and like what what are the origins of the gilman mcdonough yeah i don't go
1: back that far because we're you know we're past the hundredth game so um I, i i think in the old old days uh when mcdonough was a boarding school out there in the far northwest suburbs of farmland and dairy farms and all that sort of thing um and it was a school originally for orphans that evolved into a military school um i think it for whatever reason it became gilman's natural rival and i don't mean this in a negative way but i don't think places like boys latin and saint paul's and whoever else might you know be a considered rival now were in the same athletic class as those two schools i don't know i'm sure that you know the 75 year old bl guy would would you know fight over that comment but i i think that's how it evolved you know 100 years ago or 80 years ago and not 30 or 40. Um, I think that's how it started. Um, But, you know, others, you know, we've had other rivals. I mean, as a football coach, our, you know, I never coached a game that wasn't an A-conference football game, and and they were tough, tough games in those days. You know, other things that have intervened, too, as you know, I mean, segregation and integration and black schools and white schools and the old Public versus private and Catholic and all that stuff. And that they were all separated out years and years ago. And when they came together, which Gilman was, you know, very much a part of and wanted to be a part of, uh, you know, we were playing different kinds of schools and we've got to know other schools and other rivalries sprang up. I mean, we didn't we didn't play Loyola and Calvert Hall 50 years ago. I mean, they played themselves and other Catholic schools. Um, and then it kind of morphed into, well, let's play the best versus the best. And that's how that conference got started. Um, and then rivalries sprung from that. So our Calver Hall game had a very different tenor than our Loyola game did. And both of them were different than McDonough, certainly. And when we played Polly, Polly was a huge public school in those days, nationally known, and City was a rival. We played both of them, and they were tough games against – you know, city schools that had 2,000 kids, um, you know, so there were different kinds of rivalries, but McDonough was always special for whatever historical reasons. And then others came up. I'm sure if you asked, well, I, I was going to say, if you asked the lacrosse kids today, you know this as well as I do. I mean, I, I'm sure the lacrosse competitive hatred for Loyola or Calvert Hall mm-hmm. is every bit it is, it is for McDonough. I mean, I'm sure that's the case. And and, and it was that way in football, in my day. Uh, but McDonough was different. That's all.
0: Hmm. Um, so, so playing three sports at Gilman and then coming back to coach, um, I guess I'm thinking about what, what was it like to become a head coach at Gilman and kind of step into that role, uh, for the first time. And, yeah. Um, I don't know, because those games were such high caliber, high stakes, you know, coming back to your alma mater and becoming a like leading figure of a team. What was that experience like for you?
1: Um, luckily, I was an oblivious young person, and it didn't bother me probably as much as it would if I thought about it now. But I was made head coach in basketball at age 20, 23, and I was a complete idiot. I mean, I was all over the rest <laughs> I was just loud and obnoxious. I was hated by opponents, probably not very well liked by some of our own people. Um, but, and at age 30, I was made athletic director. And then at age 31, after a season of a, of a coach who came and went from Gilman after one year, and I had to be, I had to become a football coach because I'd been the JV coach for nine years. Um, and the guy left in July. And so I just said, I'll, Excuse me, I'll become football coach. So at age 31, I was head football coach. So the answer to your question is, what was it like? It was daunting. It was, it was hard. Uh, it was, luckily, and you know this from everything you've done at Gilman, if you have the support of your department head or your administration and athletics or your administration academically, uh, life is a lot easier. It's a lot better if, if parents or something comes up. And if your school's not behind you, supporting you, uh, it's a harder task. Uh, I had great support. We all had great support in those days from from the school in every way that you could imagine, um, and you know, in the classroom, in the on the field, or on the basketball court, everywhere. Um, but it was hard. You know, one of the one of the hard things, Jake, is, and you were a good player at Harvard. One of the one of the hard things is that people who were good players, it's not easy to be a coach sometimes. I mean. You're a good player. Some of us were good players because some things came naturally, and we're not sure why, but they just did. And some kids can't do that, or I'm not sure the best players are always the best coaches because sometimes they can't teach the technique that's needed to make an average kid better. Some can. Not. That's not. You know. It's the generalization. I realize, but you know, it's why you see it, like on the baseball field, why some backup catcher is a great manager, and not the guy that hit. 50 home runs a year for 10 years. I mean, it's, it's just the way it is. So, so you got to, as a young coach, you really have to understand what makes the players tick and how you can get to them rather than talk at them. And that's, that's a hard thing to do, especially if you're young, brash and idiotic, like I was. And, um, but eventually I learned and I think, and by the time I got the hang of it, I was a little better, but uh, you know, I think that's part of being a young coach and a young teacher, you know, what did you know going into your first classroom? I, I don't know, maybe I was got. Kind of, you talk about scary, you played against Princeton and you played all these big lacrosse games. I bet when you walked into your first ninth grade English class, you were more scared than you were <laughs> walking on the field in the championship game. I bet that, I bet a hundred dollars. That's the case
0: for sure for sure. Brand new experience. You know, you don't really know what you're doing. Yeah. I'm thinking 23 years old head basketball coach. What were the most, maybe in addition to like relational coaching and figuring out how to speak with your players and get to know them instead of at them, what were the most important skills of coaching that you learned over your, your career starting as a basketball coach? I
1: think I I had to learn patience because I wasn't very patient. I think that one of the good things for me as a 23-year-old, and I, and that means I was five years removed from being a Gilman senior. Some of those players actually knew who I was as a player, and and there, so the reputation preceded me, and that helped me, um, and it made me it made it a little easier for me, but it also made it hard because I wasn't a very patient young coach. I thought it should be obvious what they should be doing or why did you do that what are you crazy or you know whatever well yeah come on and you got to learn how to get to that level so you can you know instruct them the right way and make sure they understand you know what you're talking about instead of just being some guy who thinks he does um that's hard it's hard it's why you know as an athletic director it's why when we place in the finney search group when we place coaches we can say, hey, how old are you, Jake, right now? How how old are you? 26. So we've got this 26-year-old guy. He used to be a Harvard captain, and he's a great player, and he's been at Gilman. He could easily be your head coach. And they say, the AD says, or the head of school says, well, you know, 26, that's pretty young, and he's never been a head coach before. How do we know he can handle it? And you say, well, he's really mature, and he's got this great background, he's coached with these great coaches, and he's played at these great schools. And they still might not pull the trigger because, you know, they think, you're not quite ready. Well, you know, nobody has their final job, the first one they ever they ever get. You know, nobody, you know, Henry Smythe wasn't the headmaster for 20 years before he came to Gilman. Somebody had to give him that job. So somewhere along the line, somebody has to show confidence in you. Uh, you have other qualities of character, perhaps, that go beyond credentials and all that sort of thing. And hopefully those things come out if you're the right young head coach and you can, um, it just goes back to character. It just goes back to quality of character. It's the Finney quote that everybody remembers, it's the quality of the character of the person, not what he says, it's what he does and it's what it is. So I don't know if that answers your question or not, but it, it, you know, it was hard, but look, we're all competitors. So you better, <laughs> you better figure it out. Or you're gonna be a losing coach and you're not gonna be coaching very long. So, you know, you better get it right.
0: So in the is it the Thunderdome? Is that what it's called? It was called the The Def Dome. The Death Dome, yeah. The, the Dome. In the Death Dome, was there a memorable the most memorable basketball game that you ever coached in in there?
1: Yeah. Um well two two games in particular. One was a Friday night McDonough game where uh 1976 joe finnerty i remember him well hit a three-quarter court shot down one it wasn't a three-point shot in those days down one to the basket at the lobby end banked it in from like three-quarter court and we won the game so uh that was the winning bucket at at the buzzer against mcdonough i remember um later in my well it might have been around the same time late 70s we we were playing in those days. We played basketball in the public school league, and, and to Will's credit, they play in the A conference now. So it was it was the equivalent of the A conference in those days. But um, we had no business belonging in it the way Will does now. Um, so we were in it. We were getting roughed up by everybody. Um, you know, if we won five games out of fourteen, that was a pretty good year in that league. But I remember we're winning a game on a, some random Tuesday afternoon, and. Uh, Against the public school, and there, for some reason, some Baltimore Sun guy was covering the game, and we're winning, and we win. Whatever game, you know, game's over, and a guy comes up to me. And he had covered me as a player, and he said, "Hey, coach, do you realize that this Gilman Senior just broke your scoring record?" And I said, "What are you talking about?" He said, "Well, you know, you had you had the most points scored in a game in Gilman's career and Gilman's history, and this guy just scored 47." And I said, he scored 47. I had no idea. We were so into the game that it was like, we're finally going to get a win over a public school. I didn't realize he was literally scoring almost all our points. It was just one of those, you're in the moment kind of thing. And, and the kid scored 47. So I'm, I'm sure it's still a Gilman single, single game record, maybe 46, but 46 or 47. And, uh, that's a memory only because it's so stupid that I wasn't aware of what was going on, <laughs> but it was a win.
0: That's funny. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. I was talking actually to my English class. I'm not sure why this came up, but about, uh, the flow state and what the flow state is in, in sports. And my mind immediately goes to basketball with that, that term. Like when you hit your flow state, it's like you can't miss for whatever reason. And the game is just comes easily. Um, Forty-seven yes. points in a high school basketball game.
1: Yeah, so you so you get in the zone, as they used to say, and you just you know you don't even know what's going. On. It's the old Michael Jordan, you know. I'm in the zone thing, and that, in that one game against whoever was Utah when he couldn't miss uh, in the playoff. Yeah, that's what happened to that kid, and, and I was in a different flow, that's for sure. <laughs> so I didn't know I didn't know what was going on, but it was a it was a win.
0: So how about how about teaching English at Gilman and your time in the classroom? I uh, would love to know a little bit more about your teaching style and some of the things that you learned as a as a teacher here, and some of maybe the other teachers you mentioned. Um, one of the Armstrong, Armstrong yeah. the English teacher, he you learned from, but some of the other influences on you as a teacher.
1: I think one of the, one of the things that interested me over the years, Jake, and, I, and this was as a, an academic administrator as well as an associate headmaster. Um, in those days, I'm sure it's true in your day. Right now there are just so many different styles of teachers and teaching so i can vividly remember a parent being really mad that his son was in this particular math teacher's class because it was just chaos my kid can't concentrate the guy has no control over the class um all that kind of stuff yet you could ask another student and he would say that teacher reached me better than any other teacher ever did because of the style of that class and all that stuff. So I guess the long answer to what you're saying is everybody had their own style and there's no blueprint for success in teaching, especially these days when in my day, there was more, for lack of a better term, lecturing or talking to the class rather than all the other things that are going on now in an interactive class. Um, But the point is, teaching styles are different, learning styles are different. And it's how you can reach the kids in the classroom the same way you could reach kids on a field. Um, I was a, a very afraid teacher like you were, um, and I didn't know what I was doing. So in those days, I had to teach four classes a, a day and prep for, uh, you know, for regular stuff. So um, I don't know, do you teach ninth grade, Jay?
0: I teach 11th and 12th grade, uh, teaching so you got juniors. Seniors are pretty checked out. I had like half the class missing today. They're eight a.m. April, class.
1: April twenty-second. What do you guys do about that? Do you ever discipline them these days? What's going on?
0: I don't know. I mean, I marked them absent, but I'm wondering <laughs> what <laughs> where the follow-up is on that because.
1: Well, that's a, that's another tradition lost. We used to we used to <laughs> nail those kids in those days, but uh, in our day, uh, yeah, I don't. I honestly, I don't know accountability. You know, as a matter of fact, I was thinking about that talking before, and I. I didn't want to mention it because it might be too heavy, but accountability is probably something that I worry about. I think that in the old, old days, uh, there was just a different feel about what happened to people if they did certain things and, uh, you know, and all that stuff. So uh, I hope accountability is still something that kids learn there and are held to. But um, back to teaching. <laughs>
0: yeah, so... so- your teaching style and what was it like to teach english at gilman and maybe why why english
1: well why english because i was an english major and uh that's why english Uh, and i couldn't possibly teach anything else uh because i could read and write and all that sort of thing i'm sure just like you can so i think style was probably more conversational whatever that means um i was easy in class i think uh we had I love the discussions in those days ninth grade we let off with kill a mockingbird and I just love the discussions about all the stuff that goes with that I think it set a great tone for the year for us because it. got into some media issues for young ninth graders coming to the upper school and. Um, uh, if you could connect them through those issues and have them understand that you have compassion for and understand some things that are going on or have them learn that these things are going on and they didn't even know they were going on. I think that makes for an easier year uh, because they trust you. So I think like anything else, style is probably based on respect and trust both ways. Um, You have to show it to them when they act appropriately and you should be someone trying to gain the trust and respect of kids or anybody else you deal with. Uh, in everything you do, so style—that's—that's uh, that's probably how I operated um, in the classroom.
0: What were your favorite texts to teach in English?
1: Uh, <laughs> uh, I loved *To Kill a Mockingbird*. We had in those days Shakespeare. It was *Julius Caesar*, and that was a good Shakespeare intro for a ninth grader coming from another school who never had Shakespeare it was a good follow-on to whatever they were learning in middle school uh because it had a great you know stabbing scene and all that sort of thing it was good stuff and you kind of get them through the language and then this was this was interesting i i used to like to teach a tale of two cities they used to hate to read a tale of two cities um but it was a great historical novel for a lot of good reasons and it was dickens and all that sort of thing so um I had fun with that. Um, When I was teaching 10th grade, we had a great short story collection that we had fun teaching because the stories were so good. Um, But I think probably those are, you know, what I don't like, I didn't like correcting all those papers. I didn't, in our day, I don't know about you, but in our day we had almost weekly, and thank God when we went to like the 10 day cycle thing, It became every 10 days rather than every five. But we had like weekly essays or themes or stuff, you know, under pressure writing in class and not, you know, over and above tests. And man, it was tough getting them back all the time. Um, You know, one year I had three ninth grade English classes and one 10. And by the time I got to the third English class, teaching the same stuff every day. It was like mind-numbing. It was, I don't know how I got through some of those classes or how they got through them, um, but uh, you yeah, know, not, wasn't crazy about doing all the, you know, writing, you know, the correcting of the, but let me tell you, it's interesting. I, You guys don't do this anymore, but we, we used to tear apart an essay and we used our punctuation rules, which the kids were supposed to learn by number. I mean, I just, I just had an exchange with a guy who's writing a major league, baseball blog and he was talking about P one with me in an exchange off the record. You know, we were talking about stuff that he had written about and he's now whatever, 50 years old. So that kind of stuff, that kind of stuff matters, you know, in the long run.
0: And is there a reason that you chose to study English in, in college of all, all the different things that you could have selected? Was there an English teacher you had or, or a class that you took at Gilman that pushed you in that direction?
1: I think it was because I just had an innate uh, desire to read and I liked to read certain things and I could write. So for me personally, um, it was easy to read about something and write a couple page paper on it. Uh, I know people labor over that, but for me that wasn't hard. So I didn't want hard in college. <laughs> I didn't, I wanted to do what I could what I could do fairly easily, uh, not that I was a great college student, I certainly wasn't, but uh, I could, I could easily, let's put it this way. I could more easily get the gentleman's C doing that than I could trying to be a Spanish or mathematics scholar or something like that. That wasn't, that wasn't going to work. So that's why English. And I also thought, you know, coming out of college and having no idea what I wanted to do, obviously, reading and writing skills are transferable to whatever. Um, you know, so whether that was in insurance or on wall street or wherever it was, I mean, that you, if you could read and write, you're ahead of the game.
0: True. I think it's very similar to why I chose to study English. It was just always yeah. very natural for me. I had some great teachers too, but it's what I love to do. So
1: you'd rather read a book and write about it than read, you know, to do a proof in uh, geometry or, you know, do something in a chem lab. That's That was my, that was my deal for sure.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Same reason. I was never, never the greatest in math. So.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's out. Uh,
0: what was it like playing two sports at Princeton in college?
1: Uh, not hard because I was playing three and those days it wasn't called travel teams, but they were, I just played all day. So I just, this is what I did. It's what you probably did in life. So what do you do when one season's over? You play the next season. So, I, you know, that's that's what I did um, until my sophomore year in college. So that was kind of expected. That's why I did it. And, you know, they're good friends, great people that i still in, in contact with now. Um, so that was my group of friends, too.
0: And then how about – I'm not sure if you got my email about the book recommendation, but if you have one, one book recommendation to uh, – there we go. What is –
1: so you guys ought to read this, because I'm reading this for Finney, not for fun. There's a book called Hopes and Fears, subtitled Working with Today's Independent School Parents. And it is written by two educational psychologists. Uh, you may have heard of one of them. The guy, his name is Michael Thompson, and he's written it with another guy named Robert Evans. and And it's... Uh, it's you know it's a 2022 book. It's it's all it's all up to date. It's all about what motivates parents, why kids act the way they do, how you have to handle it as administrators. Uh, you name it. Uh, it's it's great. It's 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 must reading. White teachers and black families, chapter six. It's you know the DEI work. It's everything that you guys are facing every day of your you know career. Um, it, and, it's, and it's by people that have been in schools their whole lives and get paid to give you know, seminars and workshops and PD things for teachers. So uh, I would suggest you read it.
0: Hopes and Fears, why Why that title?
1: <laughs> because what leads hopes to become reality and what leads fears to become horrible experiences for kids in school and for schools to cope with it. So, uh, you know, basically it's, it's 95% of the parents and kids can be handled the right way, and 5% are absolutely toxic in how you have to handle them and in uh, the things, the shenanigans that they do to make schools tougher places to be.
0: Yeah, he came to Gilman a couple of weeks ago, right, Michael Thompson? Yeah, yeah.
1: Michael yeah. Thompson did? He came yeah.
0: to speak to the students and the faculty. I thought he was awesome, really impressive. Well,
1: there he is. So this is his latest book, Hopes and Fears. And it's, and, uh, it's an easy, it's, it's, it's a read when you start reading it, it'll be holy cows is what I go through every day. Or if I were an administrator, I, if I were an administrator, I can only imagine what, you know, how to handle this or do that. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you for the recommendation.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, um, coach Bristow, it's been a pleasure, uh, hey, talking to you. Thank you very much for do- doing this and taking the time.
1: Thanks for putting up with the uh, internet there, Chesiree. do good work and uh and my pleasure you guys can always have me back whenever you want no problem
0: would love to thank you very much yeah appreciate it we'll see See you